You're listening to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. We have just recently concluded the 12-week Torah series that we were going through, reading through the first five books of the Bible. And this week, we have launched our new reading plan, the 90 Days of Promise. And this is going to continue the historical documents regarding Israel and their entry into the Promised Land. And we get to read about what happens. What do they do when they get there? What is the outcome of all these promises that were made? And how do the Israelites respond to the stipulations of God's covenant that they had entered into? So that's the things we'll be talking about over the weeks to come. And we're going to begin by looking at the book of Joshua. And Joshua is a figure that was present in the ministry of Moses and was like an apprentice to Moses. He was there when Moses went up the mountain and got the Ten Commandments, and he was one of the faithful ones who, uh, when he entered the Promised Land to spy it out, he came back saying, let's take it. Uh, And so Joshua is one among two people who don't die out from the old generation, and he is now taking up the mantle, and he is the leader of Israel. And as you look at the life of Joshua, you see some similarity to Moses. In fact, I think the Bible makes it clear that he is like the new Moses. Now, Joshua's name in the Hebrew is Yeshua, and Jesus, his Hebrew name, would be Yeshua. And so they have a similar, uh, well, they have the same name, and because of that, I think there's some uh, uh, typology that is connected to the life of Joshua. So as you study Jesus and you study Joshua together, you may see some similarities. And one of the things that's similar about them is they both are presented as a new Moses. And so not only does Joshua become the leader, like Moses was the leader uh, of the Israelites, but there are specific things like Moses parted the Red Sea and Joshua, when he comes to the Jordan River, it parts as well, indicating um, that he is carrying the same authority that Moses carried. And the same God that would part the Red Sea is going to part the water for Joshua. We see uh, not only that, but um, when Joshua encounters the angel of the Lord or the the commander of his armies, um, he tells Joshua to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Well, that's the same language we got from Moses when he encountered the burning bush. We see Joshua talking to God, just like Moses would communicate with God. Um, God wasn't communicating with everybody in the camp of Israel. He was com- uh, communicating with these leaders. And uh, Joshua is going to lead a Passover observance, just like Moses did um, when they were exiting Egypt. Uh, and then in chapter 8, verse 30, um, through the end of the chapter, even though you may have not got there yet, we're going to read about this re-giving of the law. And so Joshua's going to have the Ten Commandments rewritten on stone, uh, just like Moses did. And so this is a renewal of the covenant, and they are to uh, present this to the Israelites because it's a new generation. And Joshua is acting in the capacity of Moses in all of this. And we'll talk about some of these features specifically. Um, but there's one thing I thought was just almost laughable. In fact, I I did laugh out loud. It's the first time I've laughed out loud reading the Bible in a while. Uh, But in chapter one, when Joshua was talking to the Israelites following the death of Moses, he turns to them and he's like, hey, we're going to go do all this. We're going to conquer the the Canaanites and we're going to take the land that God has promised to us. And they say this in verse 16. And they answered Joshua, all that you commanded us, we will do. And wherever you will send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so will we obey you. Well, that made me laugh because I read Deuteronomy. I read Exodus. 
they didn't follow Moses at all. They were rebellious against Moses. In fact, the reason Moses is dead on a mountain on the other side of the Jordan is because of them. In Deuteronomy, Moses says it multiple times that God was mad at Moses because of their rebelliousness. Now, obviously, Moses was guilty too, but it was the rebelliousness of the Israelites that led Moses to having his own rebellion. It just kind of trickled over into his own life and it uh, sort of was kind of a, a corruption of his own character because he had been among these rebellious people for so long and it just got to him. Um, so he kind of blames them as well as himself. Um, but when I read this and they say, we're going to follow you and obey you just like we obeyed Moses, well, that's not a grand gesture of devotion and faithfulness. Uh, in fact, I'd be a little scared if I was Joshua at that point in the story. But nonetheless, he's going to be their leader and he's going to lead them into the promised land. And Moses and God, both on multiple occasions, tell Joshua to be strong and courageous. Now those words, when I read them, they're often accompanied by the things that God is going to do. He's not just telling Joshua to be strong and courageous and to be a military commander and to fight well and to be able to beat up everybody that he comes across. That's not what he's saying. Um, and if he was saying that, then what does that communicate to us today? Just be the best that you can in whatever you do and be a warrior at work and be a, um, you know, a, a bully on the stock market and everything that you do and just do it ferociously. No, that's kind of the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to have childlike dependence and to um, come to uh, others with meekness and humility. And so to be strong and courageous doesn't just mean being a warrior. I think in the context, when we read these things, he's telling him to be strong and courageous, and that's built upon the foundation of what God is going to do. So God has already made promises that the Israelites are going to enter the promised land and they are going to take it. And so everything that Joshua does needs to be predicated upon that promise. It needs to be rooted in trust of God at his word. And that's the same for us today. For us to be strong and courageous is for us to listen to what God says he is going to do and then to live on those promises, trusting that it's going to happen. So, for instance, he says that the church is going to spread the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. We know that that's a promise. It is going to reach the nations. Therefore, we need to be strong and courageous. What does that mean? Well, that might mean uh, getting highly involved in some of the missionary efforts of unreached places because we trust that God is going to live up to his word. He promised, and his promises don't fail. And so we can be strong and courageous there. Now, I can't be strong and courageous uh, uh, like whether I can climb Mount Everest because God didn't promise me that I could climb Mount Everest. So I can be as strong and courageous as I want, and I might die up there as an icicle. But he did promise that he was going to reach the nations. And so my efforts there are not in vain because they're built on the promises of God. That's what he's telling Joshua. The earlier generation failed to live up to those uh, promises that God had made. They didn't want to enter the promised land. They weren't strong and courageous. They didn't trust God at his word. And so they're telling Joshua to trust God at his word and make sure that the people do too. Um, we get into the, uh, there's a lot to cover here, the story of Rahab, even though I, I think most readers are going to be familiar with that. So I'm going to skip over that a little bit and get to some of the undertreated uh, areas of this passage. And so after we get through with the spies going into the land, we get to a 
point where they're crossing over the Jordan River, and one of the things they do is stack up rocks in remembrance of that event that the Jordan was parted and that they walked across on dry ground. And this is given as a sign for children. When the children ask in the time to come, it says, what do these stones mean? That's when you have a situation to give an answer. Now, God is highly invested in the family dynamic, the family unit, and um, he's highly invested in how we portray Christ and portray um, God's divine acts to our children. He's highly invested in that, and so he provides numerous references to the way that we are to interact with our children. Deuteronomy 6 was a huge chapter dedicated to how we are to respond to children. We are to teach them about God when we wake up in the morning. We are to teach them about God when we walk along the way, when we sit at the table. Instructing our children about God and what he's done is extremely important according to the Bible. And here again, we have another situation where you stack up stones after crossing the Jordan so that you can teach your children. Because if you don't teach your children, they are going to go wayward. They're going to forget what God has done, and when they forget what God has done, they're going to forget who God is, and they're going to put their trust in other things. And so it's extremely important that we put our uh, children in a situation where they are reminded about God's goodness. And how do you do that today? We don't necessarily need to stack up stones, um, but we have a lot of things that remind kids of the goodness of God. We have baptisms that they see that remind us. They have uh, communion that they see. And those are things that happen at church, which means you have to be taking your family to church for them to see them in order to have these conversations. But then there are things in the home. Uh, you might have scripture plastered on a um, poster or a picture, a framed piece of art, or maybe some of that decorative writing on your wall to remind the kids that scripture is important and it breathes life into our family. Um, Perhaps you have uh, Christian music. Maybe it's not a visual. Maybe it's an audio reminder. You listen to Christian music, and so they are reminded of the goodness of God through song. Uh, you name it. You can do all kinds of creative stuff to remind kids and to provide these cues that create conversation pieces uh, throughout the day. But what's important is that you spend time teaching children about God. Uh, but the next thing that we see in the passage is that once they get across, they do something that I would have deemed completely stupid um, because this just doesn't seem like the right move to make from a human standpoint. You get across the river and the waters close behind you and now you're in enemy territory and it's territory they've never been. In fact, if you go back to chapter 3, he commands the armies of Israel to stay 2,000 cubits behind the Ark of the Covenant because it's a place that they've never been. He doesn't want anybody wandering off the wrong direction because they can't clearly see where the Ark of the Covenant is heading uh, through all the brush or whatever it may be. Um, this is a big group of people, so they wouldn't have been single file. So you got to stay far enough back that you don't lose sight of the leader, which is the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, that just reminds us that they have no idea where they're at, where they're treading. This is unfamiliar territory. But now they've entered into enemy territory, and it is a fortified city, Jericho. And this fortified city has armies, and the armies know the location very well. And so what's the first thing I would do from a human standpoint? Well, I would have been strategizing. I would have been trying to figure out what the best plan of attack is, and then I would have been training my troops so that they knew exactly how to attack this fortified city. But the first thing God has his people do, the first thing Joshua does, is he 
performs surgery on all of his warriors. And so now they're in recovery with no route of escape. They are stuck on this side of the water. And it's like, why didn't you do that on the other side of the river? Well, I think this is one of those places where you just have to trust God. And God is putting you to the test. Are you going to trust him? And so they are circumcised. And the reason they're circumcised, it says, is because though their parents were circumcised when they left Egypt, the new generation was not circumcised because they were born in the wilderness. Now, that's ironic for a variety of reasons. One is Moses was their leader, and Moses should have known better. Uh, two, the parents should have known better because they had undergone circumcision. But we see that the parents are rebellious in nature. They're not willing to go into the promised land. They rebel against Moses and his authority. They rebel against um, the authority of Aaron, the high priest. They uh, rebel based on what they have to eat and not having water and so on and so forth. So it doesn't surprise me that they don't circumcise their kids, even though they were commanded to and were supposed to. On many occasions, they wanted to go back to Egypt and just worship their gods. And so they haven't fully bought in, and it comes as no surprise that they do not circumcise their kids. But Moses, that kind of seems strange and odd to me. Um, for one, Moses seems to be a godly, upstanding man, and he fears God, and he listens to God. Um, but the other reason why it's so ironic is Moses almost died for not circumcising his own firstborn child. And Zipporah has to come and cut off the foreskins of her firstborn son uh, and throw them at Moses' feet just to ward off this angel of death that's going to kill Moses. And so it's ironic that Moses does not learn from that and press the generations uh, under him, the, the Israelites under him, to circumcise their children. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is there's only two places where the word flint knife comes into the Old Testament. And the first one being when Zipporah takes a flint knife and she cuts off the foreskin of her oldest son. And the second one here, when Joshua takes flint knives and he cuts off the foreskin of the armies of Israel. And so I believe there's an echo here of what happened before. And what's being communicated is if you don't cut this off, if you do not undergo circumcision, then when you go in to fight this battle, you're going to die. Just as Moses was going to die, if he went in to encounter Pharaoh without cutting off the foreskin, because he was to undergo this as a fulfillment of what was predicted under Abraham, that that would be the sign of the Israelites. And if they're going to be a unique people among these other nations, then they have to undergo this practice. And so that's what happens with Moses, and that's what now happens under the command of Joshua. Um, but it marks the people. It's a new people going into a new land uh, with their God, who is different from the gods of the Canaanites. And so they are going to have this mark in their body to remind them of that. Following circumcision, they go into Passover. And this is the feast that's to separate them apart. And this is sort of ironic as well, because they leave Egypt through the Passover. The Passover was the place where they had marked the blood on the doorposts, and they had eaten the unleavened bread because they didn't have time for it to rise. And as a result of that, um, that, that night when the angel of death came, all of the firstborn children of Egypt died. And after eating the Passover, the Israelites took up all their belongings, and they made for their escape. 
and that marked the beginning of the new people of God. They were leaving Egypt as a separate entity. They had their own holiday now, their own calendar. It was going to be the first um, year, first month of the year for them. All of this marked them as a specific, unique people. And now, here they are entering the promised land, and it just coincides with the day of Passover. So Passover marks the Exodus, and Passover ends the Exodus. The Passover is how they got out of bondage, and the Passover is how they entered into God's goodness. And I think that has some echoes in Christianity as well in the New Testament when we read about Christ as our Passover lamb. Not only is Christ the um, deliverer from our bondage to sin, but he's also our entry point to God the Father. He's our entry point into eternal life. And so we see those... Um, those correlations and parallels running between the New Testament and the Old Testament and Passover being at the center of it all. Well, we're going to stop there for today, um, but we will pick up next time on the Bible Brush Up podcast. Hope you have a good week and enjoy the new reading plan. See you next time.